Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the, the Unauthorized, Unauthorized Critics, Critics Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCC. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater with the by normal bitcheries and qualms by watching the video recordings from of questionable origins of various productions. This week, we are discussing The Sweet Smell of Success, specifically the Broadway production performance from February 26th of 2002. I'm not entirely sure how easily accessible this video is. Uh, Doing some minor research, it seems a little bit hard to come by, but if you happen to have any connections or if you're able to find any glimpse of this show, go for it if you can. Uh, we mentioned this because while we review the show itself, we also talk about the specific performance that we've seen. The internet is your friend, darling. So, without further ado, the curtain is now rising. I'm so looking forward to a nice brother-sister relationship, really supporting each other. That's a way to put it. Please enjoy our discussion of the Broadway production of Sweet Smell of Success. Dan? Dan, it's Joshua, yeah. you there? I'm here. All right, you have your notebook? Okay, take this down. Uh-huh. Laura Osnes, out at Crazy For You, oh, Sierra Vargas, oh, in. Jesus. <laughs> Seems like this prick didn't get the prick. Next item. <laughs> Cameron McIntosh, surprisingly not tolerant about the current state of musical theater. Next topic. Alice Ripley is... Oh, sorry. Hold on. Uh, no. Oh, jeez. We can't go there. We can't go there. <laughs> oh, no. It's weird that this is coinciding with such an insane time in Broadway gossip. Gotta get in the column. Um, welcome back to the Unauthorized Critic Circle, where uh, I am currently recording from... The world's most abandoned and vacuous cave, judging by the reverb of this space I'm in right now. You're recording from your asshole? <laughs> is that worth it? Yes, it was. Yes, did, it you, was. did you really, did you get a great enjoyment from that? You heard me laugh. Landed with a thud over here. Well, you know what? Nothing's landing over there. It has miles to go before it hits the ground. Oh, cave joke. Okay, gotcha. Um. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, listeners, thank you for being tolerant. Uh, like Cameron McIntosh. Uh, oh Joshy, Joshy is on the move constantly, apparently. We can call me other names. We can use other names for me. Jimmy is constantly on the move over there. I'll take it. I like Joshy. I Joshi's know you do, which is stick. why I'm trying to veer you off the path before it cements I, I, itself. No, it's kind of cemented itself Fuck. already. Jesus Christ. So, Joshy, what did we do this week? Well, Danny, you and I talked about watching The Sweet Smell of Success by Marvin Hamlish, legendary composer. And? And lyrics by Craig Carnelia. And? And book by John Guare. It's not Guare. So Guare? There's, Guare? there's the f- 
John Quare. There's the Quare. first hint that you're a little um, clueless. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> and? Yeah, I, and directed by Nick Heitner. And? Choreographed by Christopher Wielden. And? And designed by John Napier? Disgusting. Just right? disgusting. No. John... Scenic it's one of the guys that did Disney by Bob shows. Crowley. Bob Crowley. So, Dan, what did you know about Sweet Smell Success going into this? I, I think you should answer that question. You, you always come to me first with this question, and the audience is kind of in a rut. So, Joshi, what did you know about the Sweet Smell of Success? Thanks for asking, Dan. Um, nothing. How Nothing. About you? you hadn't seen the movie. I didn't know there was a movie until I looked into the show more. It's a famous Burt Lancaster movie, very controversial, and uh, Tony Curtis. We watched Tony Curtis and M Butterfly. Yeah, <laughs> funny that. Uh, funny at the little uh, parallel lines that are here. <sighs> you knew nothing. Well, no, I knew nothing. I, I mean, uh, but that's a boring answer. You had to know something. Uh, tell the audience about your connection to Marvin Hamlish. <laughs> You're going to put me on the spot like that? Well, uh, Marvin Hamlish is one of those knaves in entertainment that everyone just loves and everyone remembers so warmly and fondly. Why do you remember Marvin Hamlish? Well, I know he's done legendary legendary musicals i know he's done well more than anything a chorus line that's the biggest name uh, i know he did smile yeah yeah what did you think of a chorus line dan you're still shying away from this question of what you knew about the sweet smell of success are, are you trying to hide something by any chance excuse me what did you think of a chorus line which one i've seen many chorus lines the musical a chorus line from 1976 Biggest oh, hit I wasn't in around history then. I the wasn't time. around then. I wasn't around in 1976. I couldn't have caught that production. You've never seen a chorus line because apparently you just don't care and you're an awful person. Oh, this is just... Did you know Nicholas Heitner? No. I don't know that name. Well, he did a little show called Miss Saigon. Oh, shit. I keep... I keep seeing the name for the director of Miss Saigon pop up here and there, and it's never once stuck in my head. Every time I see the name of the original director for Miss Saigon, I forget it, like, immediately. I don't know what it is. Nicholas Heitner, he ran the National Theatre in London. He directed Miss Saigon, the original production. You know, I actually did see his A Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, there was a okay. recording of Fine. Uh, that production in... Finally! Uh, 20 Shut Something! Up. There was a production uh, in 2019 that was recorded for National Theatre Live... Uh, by the Bridge Theater that I watched that was just gorgeous. There were, like, rope acrobatics as part of the staging. There were platforms that moved throughout the audience. There was a portion of the audience that was, like, standing room only, huddled around the stage. It was, like, fantastic. See, you actually had something to say, and it was like pulling teeth to get it out of you. And I don't know why this is so exhausting. We don't have time for you to talk about whether or not you know anything from Sweet Smell of Success, so let's start by going into the show. Uh, what did you think about Sweet Smell of Success? 
So I had seen the movie of Sweet Smell of Success. It's one of my favorite cast albums. I, I, I don't see how before. this is tying into what you I, thought about the show. I love Marvin Hamlish. Craig Carnelia, I think, is solid. I'm not as familiar with his work, but there is definitely some great work there. You're being very um, roundabout with your thoughts of the show so far. I don't understand what I you're doing. I love John Guare. Guare. Okay, that's a very non-specific review, but I'll take it. My thoughts on The Sweet Smell of Success. I didn't know what to expect going into this show. I really didn't know what I would, what to anticipate for it. I, I, I'd heard it had a very short run on Broadway, and so I went into it going, okay, well, let's see if this just ends up being another come-and-go show. Um, and I was treated to some of the most tense musical theater I've seen in my life. Um, th this really was an edge-of-your-seat kind of experience. There was so much about this show that I thought was done so perfectly, from the, the pacing to the composition to the staging to the, the way the plot ebbed and flowed. There was so much that I loved about this, and I'm really excited to go into all these specifics as we talk about, but... So you liked it? Even just watching a video of this show was thrilling, was a really thrilling experience. I don't know if I, I'd be able to handle myself in a theater. Well, it should also be mentioned. Um, <laughs> this was 2002. Uh, the city was still reeling from 9-11. And we know in Cabaret you had so callously um, suggested that the people of New York, months <laughs> after 9-11... Um, <laughs> We're a bunch of killjoys who just couldn't enjoy a show. <laughs> no, without context, that sounds really fucking terrible. Well, explain it then. I don't remember specifically enough to be able to defend myself. I okay, just know well, that there's the beginning... a very funny soundbite from the Rocky Horror <laughs> Show episode that people should go back and find. It's not Rocky Horror, it was Cabaret. And was it cab okay, it was Cabaret. Sorry. It was Cabaret. It was recorded in, like, November of 2001. And... <laughs> and I made a lament about how the audience completely at the sucks beginning, here. You were just like, the audience sucks so bad. They're, like, dead. They don't have any energy. They don't even care that they're at this show. These performers deserved a better audience. And then and you then were like... And then you were like, um, well, this audience is coming just out of 9-11, and I immediately went, I would like to apologize to the victims of September 11th attacks. <laughs> they lost people in the towers. They're trying to go on a date night. They're met with a show about Nazis. This is not what they really wanted to see. <laughs> and I think Sweet Smell of Success was also not what they wanted to see. You look at 2002 and what was popular, um, it was the comedies. Yeah. You had Thoroughly Modern Millie, you had You're in Town. Yeah, the producers. Uh, they, well, the producers had already opened, but the producers remained popular. Yeah, it, it still sold gangbusters. It was like a big thing for like when Broadway was coming back after the, the, the September 11th attacks. Uh, the producers reopening was like this huge herald of like, we can come to theater and we can laugh our asses off again. 
Well, around this same time, you had Mamma Mia be a big hit. Or, also... as Elaine Stritch puts it, Mama fucking Mia. Mama fucking Mia. Mama fucking Mia. Uh, <laughs> you also had Hairspray was the next big hit. And then you had Avenue Q and you also had Wicked. And Wicked is really escapism. And yep. around this exact time, we saw the serious pieces of musical theater uh, fail. One after the other. Uh-huh. If you were a dramatic musical, you probably didn't make any money. And so the audience is looking for a comedy, and they are met with a dark tale about corruption and potentially incest and rape. We're gonna, I, I, and... we're gonna have to talk about that on this episode. Oh yeah. Oh, we will get to it. Uh, it rape, incest, murder crooked cops and this is not they started selling dolls i don't know if you got one of them probably not but they they were selling barbie dolls of the new york cops what? to go fund the widows you don't remember this they sold barbie dolls not barbie dolls but they sold dolls of the firefighters and the cops and they were officially released by some charity, and they were in every store everywhere, and you'd buy these cop- these dolls for your kids, and the profits would go to the widows of 9-11. So, on top of that, you have a show about crooked cops. That's not exactly in vogue at the moment. I, you know? I think this show would have done gangbusters a few years later. Uh, I don't know. Or could have. Could have. Maybe not would have, but real. I really think it could have. I think either... If you're going later, you probably need ten years. If you're going before, you probably need five. Like hmm. everything, this is timing. And of course, you remember how this show started. Yes! Um, there was a workshop production in 1998, it was... Um, that was headed by uh, Livent, which is the Toronto production company, headed by producer and repulsive human Garth Drabinsky. Garth Drabinsky, uh, a producer with a song in his heart. Garth Drabinsky, a creative producer. Garth Drabinsky, one of the great humanitarians. Garth Drabinsky. Garth Drabinsky, a man with a $3 million dollar hole in his bank account. Asset to Canadian actors' equity. Garth Drabinsky. Anything but an asset. He had zero Rebecca assets Kane's left dream. by the time that that court came around. <laughs> uh, <sighs> sweet. It was a whole group of shows. It was Fosse. It was Parade. It was Seussical. It was Sweet Smell of Success. They were all being developed by Livent when uh-huh. Livent Fosse, was... I think, by that point, or maybe just shortly after that point, had its pre-Broadway tryout in Toronto. I think Fosse was directly in the middle of it. I think that was the last thing. It, they started in Toronto, and he was still not in prison at that point. And then, yeah, by it was the in, time uh, Fosse was in a, Fosse was uh, doing a pre-Broadway thing in Toronto in uh, July '98. And by the so time they opened on Broadway, I believe before, uh, yeah. he was no longer on the production. Um, yep. And everything had come crashing down. There were a number of shows. And it seems like a hell of a parade, susical, this. These are not schleppers. Or mazeppers. These are solid shows. Um, 
Singular Sensation, Michael Riedel's recent book, everyone was trying to tell Garth Drabinsky, bring Ragtime in. Right now, 1996, don't keep it running in Toronto. Because if you bring it into Broadway right now, Titanic looks like it's going to win Best Musical. You can easily topple Titanic. Next year, you're going up against The Lion King. And you will not beat The Lion King. And Garth Drabinsky had it in his head that he was going to be victorious against Disney. And he was going to beat Lion King. And he held the company up in Toronto. And had he brought in, had he listened to other people and brought in Ragtime at the right time, he could have kept the con going for another five years. Damn. Mm -hmm. How far we fall. What were we we talking about? about? (laughs) We said that in sync. You were talking about um, your thoughts of Sweet Smell of Success. Yes, and then you already shared yours in some weird roundabout way. I Um, did not. I did not. Look, I don't think it's 100% perfect, but I do think it is an unappreciated masterpiece. I'm not going to lie to you. We're going to go into this. I think there's there's one part of this show I looked and went, this should not be here. There was one part of the show I was like, this could have been done better. Let's get into it now. What was it? It was the number that Rita had. That is my issue, too. Yeah. I am not ever against an ingenue song. And I am firmly of the opinion that without that song, Rita really is just a shallow, in-the-background character, which I don't want for Rita. But I'm sitting there during that song going... Come on, come on, keep, move along, move along, get her going. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, it fucks with the pacing so hard. Mm-hmm. In a, in like. It's not a bad almost, song. No, 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 and it's not a bad song, thing. but you're sitting there the entire time going, okay, but wait, but I want to fucking know what's happening right now. It's like, you almost want to fast forward it, which isn't the fault of the song and isn't the fault of the performer, but it's the pace of the show. It's like, it completely halts it in a way that's like it i mentioned edge of your seat that one puts you in like such a whiplash it's uncomfortable and i do think you need that moment in order to then sell how dramatic it is that he's about to just leave her alone with him to sleep with you need that moment to emphasize how fucked up that is but it just doesn't work it doesn't work it's it, it does fuck with the pacing it wasn't cut because it is a good song. It and is a good song, and, and while it is a good Stacey song, Stacey Logan had nothing is, else other than it. While it is a good song, it is wrong there, and it is the wrong song for that moment. Yeah, and I understand why you want to set up that. Oh, she's so excited, and it turns out he's just going to use her as a whore. But I think there is a way that you write that scene where maybe she has a monologue and the monologue is in a different place or there's just a much more dramatic heft and you get one hell of an actress to put that scene over that dramatic scene. There should not be a song there. Yeah, but also at the same time then, how do you build up how big of a fucking thing it is that Sydney's leaving her alone with uh what's his name otis because i think in concept that's a great fucking moment to have to go oh this sweet 
well-intentioned, kind-hearted person who's about to be just used and manipulated. Dramatically, it's a great moment, but it doesn't, it just doesn't work. I I think overall they don't track the character well enough. I agree. I would have liked to see maybe a bit more prominence from her overall to make up for it. She needed, uh, maybe there needed to be a little duet let, not a full song, but she's in one of the ensemble songs and there's a whole duet between her and Sydney. Uh, that kind of establishes the relationship between the two. Um, I like that. I like that. Ra- you know, especially instead of just doing, you know, five lines every 20, 25 minutes. And it's not the... The five lines are fine, but they aren't... They don't build up correctly. And so then when that song happens, it seems out of nowhere and it stops the show dead in its tracks. It mm-hmm. should have been cut. And the director, I think, should have directed this show, would have cut it. We'll Who's get that? to that later. We will okay. get to that later. So where do you want to start for now, then? Let's talk about the plot. Sure. Strap the fuck in, because there's a lot to cover here. Talk me through your experience with the plot, because I knew what to expect. You did not. We got to the end of the first act... And I'm surpri- I was so surprised that they had enough story to tell to fill a second. Because I felt like I was taken for a complete and thorough ride, save for the last two minutes of J.J. realizing. I felt like I had been taken on an entire like beginning-to-end narrative there. Uh, and it's two, it's two hour-and-a-half acts, which is no small potatoes. And, and, and besides the fact that you kept being hit with plot point after plot point after plot point. Besides that fact, the fact that they were able to make each one equally as engaging and interesting and thorough as the last is a huge accomplishment. It's telling a lot of story in, honestly, looking at this from a grand scale in a relatively little amount of time, considering that this is one of the longer pieces of musical theater is it 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 was it wasn't it two hour and a half acts i think it was a little shorter than that actually no no, i know the first act was like just over an hour and a half i think the second act might have been something about an hour more more than an hour that's a typical length musical well nowadays you get like the 75 and the 65 well that's because our attention spans have gone to shit but this hmm. is 2002, and that's a typical length musical. Wasn't it heading this down is, even by that point, though? It was heading down by that point, but this is 2002 of people that had made their claim to fame in the 70s. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, although, Craig Carnelia. The point is, it is not a short musical by any stretch of the word. And even still, you're fitting in an impressive amount of plot with an impressive level of intensity. It's one of the few cases where they bring up incest in a musical and you go, oh, that makes sense. That doesn't throw me. (laughs) That actually explains a lot of what I've been seeing here. I assume that from the bat. I assume that from the bat. I was really under the impression when he was like, no, she's my sister. I was there like, no, that's a lie, right? Like, they're covering up. She's not really the sister. 
And then they go no, into, so how is he your brother? I'm like, well, no, I, I know that now. But I was watching the show going, oh, he is her brother? That's okay. That's how they're choosing to play that? All right. I was like, I was like, does this show not know what it's doing? Or does this show know damn well what it's doing? It knows damn well. And what was interesting watching it now, having seen the show before, having seen the movie, that entire first scene so perfectly explains grooming. And he's not grooming mm. his sister. He's grooming Sydney to hide the yeah. fact that he's in love with the sister and has a creepy relationship with the sister is overly protective they never outright say that he's abused her but it is heavily implied it's extremely evident yeah it's kept subtextual but the subtext is screaming (laughs) um what did you have to say about the plot what did you think about it they make some changes from the movie and If I am remembering the movie correctly, really what's changed is the ending. The movie ends, and Susan completely sells out Sydney, and you think that Susan is actually the person that gets JJ killed? Or not JJ, uh, Sydney. Hmm. I heard, I, I, I read, I read something that, uh, they were closer to the movie source material in their pre-Broadway tryout and then got fucking ripped to shreds by critics and then did some retooling to adjust it closer to, I think, what was the original intent of the movie that didn't end up uh, getting produced. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, I do think the musical makes the plot a lot clearer than the movie did. And oh, modifications to the plot and differences from the film reportedly reflect author Ernest Lehman's original intent. Lehman, the author of the original novelette, was a producer on the musical adaptation. So it was closer to the source material that the movie was based on. Mm-hmm. Well, and the... You know this is based on a real person, right? Yeah, it's, um, Walter Winchell. It's based on Walter Winchell. And the movie gets more into Walter Winchell at one point thought he was going to run for president. And it gets into J.J.'s presidential aspirations. (laughs) Damn. They understand where they need to pare down. They understand where they need to focus. And they understand where in a musical where the tension points are. And what's going to keep the audience's attention. I really do think it was... An excellent job of distilling the themes. There aren't as many themes as are present in the movie, but they understand what themes will work in this medium, and they understand how to exploit those themes for the full effect. Very true. Absolutely. And then also, these characters aren't likable. That hasn't (laughs) stopped me before. Um, True. But... Watching the movie, watching the musical, I don't like the characters any more in the musical than I like them in the movie, but God, they got some great vocalists, so I at least have a nice time with the vocalists, and that makes me enjoy time with the characters more than I do in the movie. I really hate to say it, but it is true. 
It's not that the songs get me to sympathize with them, but the songs are fascinating enough that they make the characters just easier to spend time with. There's, I'm trying to find a better phrase, but um, they don't make them any... They don't excuse any of their behavior. They don't make them any more agreeable. But they add new dimensions. They add new dimensions. I think that's it. Yeah, you. It, it, it's never. No one ever becomes characteristic here. I'm gonna. I'm gonna invent that word for this podcast. No one becomes characteristic here. What does that mean? To be of a quality similar to that of a caricature. Okay, so carrot. Wouldn't it be caricaturistic? That's what I'm. That's what I'm pronouncing. You're just missing the the sort of de-emphasized caricature. It's, yeah. the, it's the cut. It's a load-bearing cut. Caricaturistic. I, I was hearing characteristic. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was saying. Characteristic. It's easy to turn these characters into caricatures. It's easy to go, oh, you've got uh, the fighting his way to the top kind of newsboy, and you've got this, you know, super greedy, hand-wringing, uh, powerful, big-time guy. But you you take these characters become fleshed out and you give them this nuance and this depth with the music that makes them so gripping so engaging and really lets you hold on to these characters and want to see where they go you're not having you know a bad time is? with them you're not having an annoying time with them what is it i'm thinking specifically i can get you in jj i can i know all the lyrics clearly um that song and Brian Darcy James's performance. I was going to leave this note until the performance. He's so slimy because he wants it uh -huh. so bad. And he's so slimy and it's kind of a little skeezy to watch it, which is exactly what that moment should be. But what keeps me interested there? I want to see where Marvin Hamlish is going with this. I want to see how Marvin Hamlish accomplishes this. So I think there sure. is, for the audience member, maybe there is some level of not disconnect, but some level of you are interested in what Marvin Hamlish musically and tonally is going to be doing, and that gives a little bit of a disconnect from just sitting with these very unlikable people. You're very yeah. aware of the authors that are writing this show. You are aware that they are smart and you are interested in seeing where they are going. And that is sometimes as much important as the actions the characters are taking. That's really interesting. So it gives you multiple... I'm coming... I, I didn't realize that. But there's multiple things to focus on at any moment. So even right. if you're Even really beyond just disgusted. the surface of the... Yeah. Even if you're disgusted by this person, you can really appreciate how you get to that moment in the musical and how you have that land and have that feel right and appropriate. Because, you know, musical theater, the very typical musical of the 1930s, joke, joke, song. And this is a happy time. You think of anything goes. This is worlds and worlds and worlds apart from anything goes. It's just, this is not a typical musical. This is not anything one would think was possible in a musical looking at the old shows. So then 
seeing this show, seeing that land, you can appreciate the craftsmanship that is happening, and you're not so stuck with these really awful people that are on stage. Here's here's something I want to bring up. I was thinking of bringing it up later in the episode, but I do want to bring it up now. It looks like we're just fucking with all the form today. Go ahead. See, it fits. It fits. Um, what I think is so great about this show is I started watching it and I started looking at it from like a very surface level perspective of like, huh, is this book entertaining? Is this music entertaining? Is this staging entertaining? And at first I was like, uh, this is sort of, nothing's really sticking out at me. And then as it kept going and going and going, I realized how quickly this show had sucked me into this universe. Mm-hmm. and this setting and this time period. Mm-hmm. And what I think is so perfect about the material is that it is so perfectly evocative of the time period. And it works towards that a lot harder than it works towards trying to be funny or trying to be witty or trying to be catchy or anything. It just... its really It really tries to be like a musicalized play, you know? It's a complete and total integration of the music into this environment. There's really no detachment from the music they're singing when they're not singing, you know, like like when they have when they have their numbers that, you know, the characters aren't actually singing in that moment. But there there's no detachment, there's no suspension that you really need there because they're all singing in such a way that it works as not singing but but the the music is constructed in such a way that it almost works as set dressing you know you're it's adding layers that we're not seeing in a way that many musicals don't really do rather than going this is the characters displaying themselves through song it's this is the city through song you know it's so the score so perfectly captures the mood of the piece so perfectly tells the mood of the piece it so perfectly sets the scene i mean you hear that score and immediately you know exactly where you are you're inside a nightclub it's the 1950s there are some jazz musicians playing they've had cocaine you are on your second pack of cigarettes a day there's a martini in your other hand and it's 3 (laughs) a.m so true what a what a you you painted an image as evocative as anything in this musical. <laughs> well, that's what that music is. That is exactly what yeah, that music is. It's exactly it, it. It's so. And that's what the show is, the and that's when so the show happens. The circumstance. Yeah. And it's it's and it's even beyond the music. It's of course you know a book is probably going to be the first go to. This is what you're going to have to get right. But God, the. the the direction of the actors is perfect. The choreography is perfect. The the staging itself is perfect. Everything here really, really all adds up to a completely holistic vision. You know? Everything services everything. And that's really fucking phenomenal to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, talking th- about the score... There are few score. weak links in anything here. Talking about the score... Um, ooh, ooh, Dan, would you like the... me to sing the score for you? No. Da 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 da. 
from the bum bum ba da dum bum bum ba da dum. It's that syncopation immediately. It's undulating. It's a muscular muscular musculature muscular. What word am I looking for? Having lots of characteristic. Mus no no no, <laughs> muscle filled. It's muscular, right? Sure. It's it's a muscular score. It's undulating. It's churning. It's constantly alive. It's constantly moving. It's exciting music. It it it's fantastic. It's a fantastic fantastic piece of theater. And just beyond the interjections boy you better be careful all of the interjections all of the uh, welcome to the night all the bombast you have these gorgeous melodies yeah I cannot hear the city I cannot hear the um you make a blur of my senses all of Dallas's material, all of Susan's material. It's so tuneful. The melodies are so rich. It's so smart. And, you know, what's something I found really smart? It's a great set of lyrics. We'll get to the lyrics in a second. You have a very smart composer. Uh, the lyric, um... Well, I got me one track, Mind. That song... Uh huh. The lyric you were given, and when three or four o'clock arrives, I'll be loving a girl five six on the seventh floor. On the seventh floor. You know where that sa lands? Where's that? It's on the seventh scale degree. God damn it! The scale. That was something that just jazzed me so much. He's singing about seventh floor, and he's on the seventh scale degree. Music theory wise, it's God, cheeky. I fucking love that. It's cheeky as hell, and God is it effective if you get it. <laughs> and that is also is that that's a Dallas song, is it? Uh, that's well, it got me a one-track mind. Ba -da -ba -da -bum. Ba -da -da oh, oh, yeah, that's when they're in the club, right? That's when near the, the end of Act One. Yeah, very yeah. near of the end of Act One. Of course, of course, the character would write something that fucking musically snarky, like something that, like, uh -huh. like he would write in something that's just that fucking over, uh, overzealous, intelligent. Yet also subconscious bullshit, you know? That's totally Dallas' style. And of course, Marvin Hamlish was a child prodigy and he went to Juilliard when he was, what, eight? Hey, Amadeus. Yeah. Um, we're sort of devoid of form here. What else would you like to talk about about the show? We haven't talked about the lyrics. Craig Carnelia did the lyrics. Sure. Um, they are so smart. They're smart, they're intelligent. They use the language of the period because although we don't think of the 1950s as having specific language, even me operating in daily life, people say, oh, you have such a wide vocabulary. No, I really don't. You just... Haven't heard of most of these words. We're very limited now on the words that we use. 
<laughs> and so using full language, using some period appropriate terms, knowing how to evoke the period, uh, having ease. The lyrics really have a great deal of ease here, and that's not easy. Art, as you might have heard, isn't easy. Even when you're hot. And you know, advancing art is easy. Yeah, how about financing it? You end up with Livent, and you learn exactly how financing <laughs> it is not easy. Wow. That was 15 years ahead of its time. <laughs> I, the lyrics have an ease to them. You're well taken care of. Nothing calls attention to itself. You want to know a great lyric? Yes. Go read For Susan. And oh, sure. go listen to it. And it's never about what's said. It's, it's about what isn't. completely about what isn't said. And go figure out how they accomplish what isn't said in that song. Masterful uh-huh. writing. Masterful writing of character. Throughout, the show is really well written for each of these characters. Yeah, you've said, like, pretty much everything that I was going to say about these lyrics. That Like, you hit the nail on the absolute head right there. I thought they were really well written. God, can we just talk about what a perfect production this was for this material? I'm not in agreement. No? I think it's a good production. I think it's a production that honors the material. I do not think it is the best production possible. I think you could do more with it if you wanted to, but my big thing is, yeah, it honors the material. I think this the really, guy, really perfectly... Yeah. Let me, let me just say this, and then we'll go into the discussion. The sure. guy that, by divine right, should have directed this was dead, and that's why he didn't direct it. And you know exactly who I'm about to say. Bennett? This is Bob Fosse. Oh, shit! This is Bob Fosse. I figured you would go with someone who was maybe more... No, yeah. This is the exact amount of darkness for Bob Fosse. This has the right rhythms for Fosse dancing. I mean, that opening... And think of the kind of isolation. Think of the amoeba. Think of the people slowly slinking on stage in their Fosse gear. It's a Fosse show. Of all of the musicals that have happened since Fosse died, Sweet Smell of Success, that is the Fosse show. Whether he would have worked with Marvin Hamlish after the A Chorus Line Chicago debacle, I do (laughs) not know. But, of all of the musicals that have happened since Fosse's death, Sweet Smell of Success is Fosse's show. We'll talk about what's good about the production in a second. Where I think this production is let down is it does not visually move in the way it should. It is not as seamless visually as the music is and as the transitions from the book into the songs are. And just the I... music that you are hearing. There are a couple moments that are great that have the right transition. Um, specifically, JJ gets killed, the ensemble comes on, they dissipate, and all of a sudden we're back in JJ's office. I think that was a great yeah, moment. Yeah, that's exactly what the... I thought you were going to mention, yeah. The entire show needed to be that, and the entire show was not that. I don't totally agree with you, but what but what I will say is I think the the set was so scarce that 
it didn't feel like significant enough of a change was happening because whenever you move from one scene to another, you're basically moving a few chairs and maybe a bar and maybe. I don't think we needed a more. I don't think we needed more set. I think you needed people dancing on to swipe the screen from one place to the next. And you never got that. I, I, I would have liked to see it like, you know, there's a conversation about cinematic theater, you know? And I'm not talking about the Evo Von Hova stuff. I'm talking about... We're talking about Dreamgirls. Yes, that's exactly... Yes, we're talking about Dreamgirls. We're talking about how you can direct a show like an edited movie, you know? And so I think it would have been interesting to see these scene transitions feel almost like a whip pan. You know what I mean? That would have been interesting to have like a real like a whip and you're moving from left to right and all of a sudden you're like completely you've you've wiped from one location to another. That would have been interesting, sure. Mm-hmm. But I think other than that, there's nothing I'd point to as going like I feel like this didn't live up. I think it was again, I think it was scarcer than it could have been, but I didn't recognize that as a detriment necessarily. What is there is classy. What is there yeah. is done at a yeah. high level. I think the choreography that Christopher Wheeldon does is great, but I do not think it is correct for the show. And Christopher Wheeldon, of course, famous ballet name, he'd go on to do an American in Paris. Uh-huh. Couldn't have loved his work in American in Paris more. I went into American in Paris thinking... It's another movie that they just plopped down on stage. I'm not going to like this. I didn't really like the movie American in Paris. And I was so bowled over that I bought a ticket like two days later to go see it again, to go figure <laughs> out how Christopher Wheeldon accomplished that. I mean, just, they had moved the well, entire... Well, I mean, if you, think about, if you think about that show specifically, it's as much of an adaptation of a movie as it is an adaptation of a ballet, kind of, you know? Because Christopher Wheeldon did... Uh, choreograph an American in Paris as a ballet in 2005. Yes. Um, but that opening ballet, uh, they moved the time period where the show was rather than 10 years after the war. They moved it to like the year after World War II ended. And so that opening yeah. ballet of the, of the French people coming through, finding the Nazis, throwing the Nazis out of the city. Nazi ballets. They get me. You have me there. Okay, I think the people have heard me mention the Weimar Republic enough on this podcast to know... That's for damn sure. Uh, Okay, that's something I'd probably be artistically interested in, overthrowing the Nazis through the art of dance. Yeah, you're barking up my tree there. (laughs) But it, like, it, it started and it was so much more serious than I expected. And it had the eye of a director choreographer. What I'm seeing here in Sweet Smell of Success is I want a director-choreographer, and the choreography begins and ends. There is a clear delineation, and the choreography I am looking at is someone from the ballet world trying to do contemporary dance, or trying to do Broadway dance, and they are successful to an extent, but it's a first foray. Or at least it feels like a first foray and they aren't completely comfortable with the form and they don't completely know how to get people on and off the stage. That I'll give you. I think their best work was being done when they had those extended moments 
and when they were allowed to stay on the stage and when they were allowed to, you know, really compliment this thing. Because you look at some of these extended dance breaks and you're there going, wow, this is so brilliantly, again, complimenting everything else that I'm seeing here. The way that the, the way that the lyrics complement the story, the way that the music complements the story, some of these extended dance sequences complement both of those mm-hmm. in that exact same way. It's not that it's bad choreography. You look at something like Dirt. The part of Dirt that is just dance is brilliant. But they're singing before the dance break, and it's very run-of-the-mill movement. And it doesn't build up to the dance break correctly. And then the dance break happens. And then there's more song. And they go back into unified movement that doesn't really pop in the eye. It just, the number, I I think Dirt, another, you know, criticism of the show. I think Dirt needed to be rewritten. And I also think it just didn't visually build enough. There are certain songs that I'm not seeing build in the way I need them to build. What are some other examples? Um, that very opening scene, Welcome to the Night, leading into the fountain, going back to the Welcome to the Night reprise. The dancing was well done. It did build at certain moments, but it didn't have a visual style, visual point of view that let that entire scene build up as one continuous sequence. You think of something like Step Into the Bad Side, Dreamgirls. Now, mind you, that is one song. And this Welcome to the Night, there were multiple songs in the Welcome to the Night sequence. But you look at how Step Into the Bad Side built... And again, I wouldn't choose Michael Bennett for this, but, you know, even Pippin. War is a science, uh, glory, glory going to the Manson Trio, back to glory. There's a natural progression. I'm not seeing the natural visual progression. I'm seeing a lot of moments that work. I'm seeing some moments that do build, but I am not visually getting the overall pacing of that entire scene leading up to one place. Okay. I can see where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a good job. I, in terms of there's choreography in the show and the choreography is not bad choreography. And there's a lot of stuff that really works, but I will agree that there is, I guess, I don't know, maybe untapped potential. There's untapped potential. That's my issue with it. There's untapped potential. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I can. I can see where you're coming from with that. It's not that the work here is bad. It is not. It's very good work. I don't think it is the best work possible for the material, and I don't think that. I I don't even know how much I I don't know how much it changed it over previews and over workshops. To me, you had mm-hmm. Bob Fosse there. That Stacy, that uh, Stacy Logan number would have been cut. A Dirt would have gotten a reprise. Maybe. Oh, absolutely. Dirt been... is one of the most fucking Fosse things I've. One of the most Fosse non-Fosse things I've ever seen. Well, it, it would have gotten a rewrite though to really have that number go over. Um, there were just a couple moments that needed rewrites that didn't happen. There were just some pacing issues here and there, which. 
Christopher Wheeldon and Nicholas Heitner are both British. And mm. as great as the Brits can be, they don't instinctively understand American musical theater pacing. Yeah, sure. I know this might be a, a brash comment for our listeners who know how favorable we are towards British musical theater. How incredibly complimentary we find ourselves being. We were complimentary towards South Pacific. I, I think we were complimentary towards a lot sure. of preludes. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's, it's just about the difference of backgrounds and the difference of theatrical past. Like, I've, I've spoken about this a lot, maybe on the podcast, maybe not. I can't remember at this point. But I've spoken a lot about how I've noticed so many trends and familiarities in British musical theater that seem to be, like, somewhat direct descendants of, like, pantos. We've gotten into that, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and I, I, I you know, I don't, it, it's not necessarily a detriment, but it's certainly a style of British musical theater that doesn't gel with the American trending towards a kind of realism style of production, you know? And not to say that, like, realism in terms of, oh, this is real life and there's no glitz or glamour or that kind of thing, but in the direction of actors and in the pacing of material and in, like, you know, that kind of thing, you're trying to make something that is closer to naturalistic than base expression, you know? You're trying to find a little bit more nuance and a little bit more depth, which is interesting because I don't necessarily think that's the exact same in terms of plays. I do think there are many British plays that offer, or I guess British productions of plays that offer a lot more nuance and focus and consistency than a lot of American productions of plays that I've seen. It's just an observation that I've made. I don't know. Play and musical are completely, although they're both theater, they're very different things. And a play isn't necessarily an American art form like musical theater is really an American art form. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think you have good work happening on both sides of the pond um, with plays. I do think the Brits take more risks with the productions of plays they do. In musical uh-huh. theater, I think... I have issues with the state of modern musical theater just in general across the world. Mm-hmm. I think what's popular right now in London is a little disheartening. You're not... For me. You're not thrilled about the recently just concluded something like 15-year run of Thriller Live? Uh, or the smash hit Hairspray. How many times are we having that in England? And... Oh, Legally Blonde has broken Olivier Award records and and Juliet. That's a show. That's probably coming to Broadway. Isn't that fun? We'll see. Multiple Britney Spears musicals on Broadway at the same time. Well, surely, surely you have great things to say about Only Fools and Horses the musical. What's that? It's a show that's been on the West End for a little while now. What jukebox is that? (laughs) Honestly, that's a safe question to ask. The Brits seem to not like serious musicals. Or... 
Well, they have Dear Evan Hansen on the West End, and that's selling pretty well. They like musicals that are more related to panto. So something like hmm. Hairspray, you put Michael Ball in a dress and everybody laughs. Whether you got that's... Anne Juliet, you got Bad Out of Hell, you've got, you know, Six. There's just a difference between how Brits view musicals and how Americans view musicals. I think... I, I don't know. While I do think this is an untapped masterpiece, there are moments that don't 100% work or needed rewritten. I, there are certain pacing issues that I don't see an American director letting them get away with. Uh-huh. But there is good work. The dance breaks. You mentioned the dance breaks. The dance breaks of great choreography. It's yeah. when there's not a dance break that I am not seeing the transition and I'm not seeing the inspiration. The direction. I mean, this is... Looking at the podcast, when was the last time we saw something as solidly acted as this? Genuinely asking, I don't know. Great Gardens? Possibly Great Gardens. Nine? I think this is above nine. Which nine isn't a low bar, but this is up right. by a considerable amount. Oh, it, all of that to say, this is extremely strong acting. Every person really lands. Yeah. All of the intentions are so clear. All of the acting work is so detailed. We'll get into that with the performance, but when the entire company is of this level, you have to give some credit to the director. Yeah. Such brilliantly in-tune performances. It's what's great. They're all so in-tune with each other. Yes, and they're you all know? in the same world. Yes, exactly. It's not multiple playing styles, which, when intentional, can be great. You look at something like the revival of Three Tall Women with Glenda Jackson, Laurie Metcalf, and Alison Pill. Those three Yeah, girls, that's three different acting styles right there. Those three girls had completely different acting styles, but they knew that, and they created the production around the fact that this is three different points in the person's life and the age reflects the acting style and it worked and that was intentional where it doesn't work is where there are multiple acting styles and it's not intentional it's, where it's kind of haphazard mm -hmm. these people all feel what like I a company think, what I think is so great about the performances here is that when there's a pause everyone's on the same page Mm -hmm. everyone's on the exact same beat. You notice when there are, when someone cuts someone off with a silence, do you know what I'm talking about? Like it, it was at the beginning of the second act, especially where I think Sydney was just rambling on and JJ cut him off without saying a word. That's when you're on the exact same beat. That's mm -hmm. when everyone is operating. Like they're all being operated by the same conductor, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is phenomenal, phenomenal direction. It's such a brilliant use of conversational rhythm. Such a brilliant use of sped up speech and pauses and hesitations. And God, there's just so many, like this is, it's, it's directed like a great play, mm -hmm. you know? That's exactly what it is. And it's, it's really, 
it's really, really, really thrilling to watch. It makes this show such a better experience for it. Um, do you have anything to say about design? The design is minimalist. The design is always classy. Um, the design is always attractive. The design is evocative enough. It's a, it's it's well designed and it's well thought out and it's very smart. Heitner generally does end up making the most of his space. You know, you think about something like Miss Saigon and you think, oh, what a huge grand production! God, they used a whole helicopter and wow, they did this big thing. Sure, aside from some large scale set pieces. It's not necessarily a maximalist production. The most, the busiest stuff you have going on is what's coming down from the flies. And you think, you know, just having experienced that Midsummer Night's Dream, that's another thing where literally there's barely any set. It's a bunch of platforms being moved around, and most of the actors spend their, spend their time uh, balancing around ribbons that are being dropped from the flies. And so he, he really is someone who knows how to work with, what you need, you know, with those bare essentials and how to make them all work. And I think the design reflects that strength. And I think that you're getting exactly what you need to tell the story. Do we have anything left to talk about in terms of the show itself? Well, there were some performers on stage. That's what I was about to allude to. Let's start talking about these performances. Sure. Let's start with the award winner of the group, why don't we? We have multiple award winners by this point in history. Yes, but the only award that this show won. John Lithgow as J.J. Oh, Hunsaker. John Lithgow. John Lithgow, who you mentioned M. Butterfly earlier. He was in the original yeah. cast of M. Butterfly. Yeah, and, and, and you mentioned uh, the original cast having Tony Randall. Who and, we watched. And I mentioned Bob Fosse, who, of course, cast John Lithgow and all that jazz to play Hal Prince. Right, true. The world is a circle without a beginning, and nobody <laughs> knows where it really ends. Um... Of course, all of our audience... Sure, okay. I, all I of mean, our audience guess... remembers Lost Horizon... Uh, the 1973 really... Burt Bacharach Hal David musical starring Liv Ullmann because our audience knows that they never miss a Liv Ullmann musical. Um, it is a musical that doesn't have a song until 50 minutes into the fucking movie. Brilliant! Anyway, anyway, so that's, I suppose, an overall favorable review of John Lithgow. In terms of what I have to say, um... I really, look, John Lithgow, again, pretty much is the only award this show received. Not even just the Tonys. You look at, like, all the awards they were nominated for, it all says nominated, 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 until you get to John Lithgow's name, and he's won whatever he's been nominated for. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing as with... um, uh, my favorite year, where it was nominated for like nine awards, three of them were Andrea Martin, and she won all of them, and that's the only award that the show won. It's another one of those situations. 
Um, and you know what? I'm not. I'm not that mad about it. I kind of. It's interesting. I'm mad that, they didn't win other things. Yes. No. Uh, yeah. I'm not mad about John Lithgow winning for best leading actor. I will say, I don't totally get that John Lithgow is in best leading actor and Brian Darcy James is in best featured actor. I this guess that you want to diversify it. I get no, why no, it's a no, no, planning. No, 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 no. Because mm. this is an important point to make. It used to be best leading actor, best uh, featured. And it was That's not right. about the size of the part. It was about, did you have star billing or did you have feature billing? Ah, and so okay. you have things like Barbara Cook winning best supporting uh, best featured actress for playing Marion Peru in The Music Man or you had Tammy Grimes win best featured actress for playing Molly Brown in The Unsinkable Molly Brown. <laughs> now, over the years that has recently changed, that change was still happening in 2002. It was mostly fixed, but John Lithgow had star billing, and that means he was always going to be in the lead category. They would have had to petition to get Brian Darcy James into that leading category because he did not have star billing, and they would not have wanted to do that because you could have taken away votes from John Lithgow. Yeah, you don't want to split the bill. Mm. But in any case... John Lithgow's performance in here, especially when you're looking at the 2002 no, uh, Tony nominees, it's not a Tony I'm mad about. I am not mad about John Lithgow receiving this Tony. Um, He's so creepy. It is so creepy, and it's so focused, and it's so direct, and it's so perfectly calculated, you know? He's so great at playing falsity. False, no, that's not a word. He's so great at playing falsehood. You know what I mean? You know what the most tense moment of the show is? Which one was it for you? The end of Act 1. Yeah. Dallas starts playing, I cannot hear the city. And of course, JJ heard that at the very beginning when he met Sydney. And he hasn't put together that Dallas and Susan know each other. And you sit there and you watch him put the pieces together that he has been played. And just looking at him, he barely has any lines. Looking at him react is the most tense moment of the show. No, John Lithgow does not have much to sing. Yes, he has a couple of dance moves. He's, eh, not the best dancer. But he is absolutely the leading force on that stage. It is a spellbinding performance that is so well done and so gives the show the very rotten core that it needs. Fantastic. Jo John Lithgow is such an incredibly versatile actor because... In my immediate go-to thought of a John Lithgow performance is the quieter, unassuming, generally polite, uh, middle America dad. You know, 
Like that's just the 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 kind kind of minivan dad. That's what I typically think of like the stereotypical John Lithgow performance, you know, in a comedy or whatever. And it takes a lot to shake that in a way that is so incredibly tense and so incredibly horrifying and so scary, you know? And that's what John nails here. Mm-hmm. It is such a firm and unflinching and unapologetic performance, you know? You're, he's so completely holed up in this character. He's so unapologetic about what's ugly about this character and playing it with not outright ugliness, but like bringing a class to the ugliness, never shying away from the fact that it is ugly and that it is horrific, but still carrying this poise that makes it feel as though he's saying, I'm, I'm evil and I'm proud almost. Like, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a, it's a fantastic, fantastic. I, would you call him, I suppose, I don't know, an antagonist figure in the show? Oh, they're all antagonists in their own way. Yeah, I can give you that. He really is a fantastic, fantastic Anti- antagonist. Well, anti-hero doesn't cover it because you're not rooting for him at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If there's anyone who's an anti-hero, it's Sydney. Mm-hmm. You want another world is a circle moment? Yeah. Did you see who played JJ in that first workshop? I had it up for a second. Uh, not the Jonathan Price one, the one... Yep, Jonathan Price. That? Jonathan Price, that's the one you're talking about? Yeah, he did the workshop just after Toronto, I believe. And Jonathan Price, of course, worked with Nick Heitner on Miss Saigon. Um, and you want to know something else? John Lithgow worked with uh, David Henry Huang in M. Butterfly, a response to Miss Saigon. And you want to know something else? Jonathan yes. Price replaced John Lithgow in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. <laughs> God, so many layers to this all. So, John Lithgow, fucking phenomenal. Now, let's move on to a podcast favorite, Brian Darcy James. This is the second performance of his recovery? Sure. He's a podcast favorite? Yeah, we we raved about him in Wild Party. We were talking about why is this guy... No, I liked him a lot in Wild Party. We talked about him. I think one of the things we said is, like, why does he not have a handful of Tonys? By now. Well, because he wasted his time in something like Shrek. Hey, his bank account's thanking him. Brian Darcy James in this show, what'd you think? At the fountain. And if you sing a sing and if you sing a song this time, I'm just not gonna let you talk about it. At the fountain has to be one of the hardest pieces written for an actor in the new millennium. And for what? And for what? Like, why, why give you something that insane, you know? Well, here's the thing. It's not just the A-naturals. It's time now to soar! And you have to sing that eight times a week. And hit it twice, because he hits it in the reprise, too. So that's 16 A-naturals in a week that you have to hit. And that is <laughs> exposed to soar! 
it's held out, it's completely exposed, it's not... Not only do you have to hit those A-naturals, it's six minutes of you on stage alone. Yep. And as an actor, that isn't easy. Also, it, you look at the actual um, map of the song, you, you, you take the old suit in the trash... You take the whole damn past and cash it in, cash the whole thing in. Uh, you have that whole section. Uh, so many times you thought the way was clear. You have the whole bridge. That is a different section. And you finally have, but there was something he could see for just a moment. That is a whole different section. Um, you finally get to the chorus, maybe I'm at the fountain, maybe I'm at the start, and then you go to the whole, Garbo, Brando, Harlow, Monroe, keep the O. Uh -huh. That is the first half of the song. We've had four or five distinct sections. Running from section to section of that song and making the transitions reasonable and understanding the tactic change and the tactic shift for each of those sections and keeping the energy up and then having to hit that A and to know that you've gone through four or five sections in the first half of the song, you're going to go through just as many sections in the second half. It is an immense acting challenge that the likes of which are not written currently not often written and then vocally not easy mm -hmm. and so when you see brian darcy james pull it off oh my god oh my god is it terrific and no the a natural at this performance was not the um most comfortable for him he hits it um, mm -hmm. it's just not the most comfortable sound he makes, but he does hit it and you, you can tell he's going to be fine. It's not just the fountain. It is the amount of sleaze and it is the amount of slime that this character goes through that Brian Darcy James honors and he, yet he keeps you engaged. Yeah. It is a mountainous Your... performance. You're always in good hands with a Brian Darcy James performance, and this is nothing short of, you know, another just about flawless take from him. There aren't weak moments. There aren't down moments. There is nothing to complain about here. This is the exact, really perfect interpretation of this character. Brian Darcy James's, I think, strongest suit is that he is as gifted a vocalist as he is an actor, you know? If Brian Darcy James were to just do plays for the rest of his life, he would be incredible, and he mm. would continue to produce incredible high-caliber work. And we're lucky that he has such a voice to go with him. Mm -hmm. Something that just doesn't quit, and something that has so much power and so much force and is somehow still able to portray so much emotion and so much nuance and so much depth. And, gosh, he's just incredible. He's just fantastic in this. 
he he carries everything with a plum. He's such a terrific performer. And it should be mentioned, uh, Marvin Hamlish, I believe, left us around 2012. Uh-huh. And that year, uh, at New Year's Eve, they did a Marvin Hamlish celebration at the New York Philharmonic. The New York Philharmonic every year has a New Year's Eve concert. And Brian Darcy James, a decade later, came out and he did The Fountain. And it was still perfect. Mm-hmm. Um... Let's move on to um, very, uh, very under-talked about, under-focused, very quiet, small-time actress, Kelly O'Hara. If you believe our podcast, she is. Because... Well, yeah, God, this is our first time talking Because, no, no, Nanette, I did point out, this is our second time covering Rosie O'Donnell somehow in a musical, and we've never (laughs) talked about, and the name I literally went to, we've never talked about, I don't know, names like uh, uh, Kelly O'Hara, Donna McKechnie, just to name a couple off the top of my head. Well, finally we're at the fountain, and Kelly O'Hara is coming up out of the fountain. This is her first, like, big principal role right like this was her first principal she's done she replaced uh, she was an understudy in jekyll and hyde uh she yeah she was she was she was young hattie in follies and then she was an understudy in jekyll and hyde and then in sweet smell of success she's the third name on the marquee Mm -hmm. Um, do you know the audition story do you know the very famous audition story i don't she was in follies and she heard about the sweet smell of success auditions well, they were, I believe, in tech for Follies, and there was a lunch break, and she ran down the street. She literally ran over to the audition room, and she knocked on the door. This is our lunch break. I'm sorry, but we can't. No, you have to see me. And everyone in the audition room looked at each other, and one of the guys eventually offered, well, I guess I can play piano for you. And he started playing piano, and just his tempo was way too slow. So Kelly O'Hara started singing, and she literally (laughs) snapped at him. And she came home, and she said, no, they had this kind of loser piano player, and so I don't think I got it. And they were like, wait a minute, this guy was in the room, and he could play piano, and did he play well? Yeah, but the tempo was way off. What did this guy look like? Oh, no. Oh, no. The person pulled up a picture, and that is how Kelly O'Hara realized she had snapped at Marvin Hamlish, the composer. Holy fuck. And Marvin Hamlish loved it. Loved that moment. (laughs) (laughs) Talked about he could not believe the balls on this kid, and it actually made him interested in her. (laughs) That's fucking phenomenal. Uh Uh-huh. She snapped at Marvin Hamlish, sight reading for her. And Marvin Hamlish, one of the legendary pianists of all time. You think of the, you didn't see the sting, but he did all that. The entire score for the sting was piano playing and the whole Scott Joplin. That was a bunch of old forgotten music. He went into old Scott Joplin piano pieces and he pulled all that shit together for the score of the sting. And that was him playing the piano. 
And that's why we know that song now. He's one of the legendary pianists, and he's not going fast enough for Kelly O'Hara. She starts snapping at him. I always thought Kelly O'Hara was, like, this sweet, kind... No, she's polite. running across the city on her lunch break, demanding to be seen in audition rooms. And you know what? That's why she has a career. That's the balls it has. Yeah. That's the balls you have to have if you're going to make it in this industry, kids. Um, wow. Thank you for telling me that story. And <laughs> so, knowing this about Kelly O'Hara, how'd her Susan sit with you? She's just perfection, isn't she? Do you want to hear something really egregious go ahead i am all infinitely more mad about this myself than i am even about hamlish this is my first kelly o'hara performance oh my god yeah yeah you know what there's yeah i'm i'm not i'm not proud i am not proud there's a boat coming in from napoli you get on it and you go back you leave is that a is that a Piazza reference? That's a Bridges of Madison County reference. Fuck me. Okay. Yeah, God damn it. I thought I had something that. there. You can't even get I that. I thought I really it's had something just, there. You are the worst. You. Why That's do I Italian. do That's Italian. Come on. I, I had a good chance. Why do I do a podcast with you? <laughs> because it makes you feel superior. Besides that, why do I do a <laughs> podcast with you? <laughs> Charity. I do give back to the children because I believe that children are. No, future. Jenna, calm down. Teach Put them the mic well. away, Jenna. Let them lead the way. Show them all. Um, this is my first Kelly O'Hara performance. I am blown out of the water with this. It's so human. It's such yes. a human performance. It's so. It, I, I don't want to give a direct comparison because I do think it's completely different styles of performing. And while I'm saying the same thing I'd say about this person I'm about to refer, it's in a different sense. But in the same way that Rebecca Luker really just knows how to play someone as a true and total human, how to play someone with so little artifice and with so much truth, that's something that Kelly O'Hara also does so fucking perfectly so much truth so much sincerity one of her staples though is understanding subtext and bringing subtext to oh classic yeah revivals. absolutely and she does that here too um you want to see a really good kelly o'hara performance that really digs into the subtext and really is the most human is that uh, what South Pacific will be? You go watch the New York Philharmonic concert of Carousel that she stars in. From 2015. With Nathan Gunn and Jesse Mueller. Terrific. I won't, but thank you for the recommendation. You must, um, and you are welcome. You must, just to see even what she does with If I Loved You. And that is it's, not even the best moment of her performance in there. I could build up the courage to watch her take on that song. You watch that performance. You go and you watch that concert production of that musical. Let's talk about something other than Carousel. Kelly O'Hara! <sighs> She's um, gotta be sheltered! And here she is. That's for damn sure. You know... She's not as perfect as she is on the cast album, but she sounds, of course, 
absolutely phenomenal here. You want to hear perfect musical theater soprano singing, go listen to her on, um, what is that song? What If, I think is the the name of the song. Uh, just the way she approaches the whole, Sydney, be happy for me. My God, it is definition perfect. And then it is Kelly O'Hara kind of expanding her wings because she does try to belt during the duet. Uh, Leave me, hold me inside and don't let me go. It's just like, oh, she... <laughs> It's <laughs> just really belt, so her trying to belt is just like this really wide expanse <laughs> at the bottom of her, leave me, hold me inside, and you're like, does she think she's black? Like, it sounds like she thinks... I was gonna say, it, it, it's, it's, it's giving me Sutton Foster and I am telling you. <laughs> And it's not it's not meant to be racial at all. No, no, but of course, of course, yeah. I'm just saying, the, the, the intonations. <laughs> Um, vocally, she's she's just perfect here, and this is a part that could have been nothing. This is really a part yeah. that could have just sat there, done nothing, and what Kelly O'Hara does here is she gives the character an inner sense of direction, and that is why the performance a, a, is great. A white bread actress would have made this a come-and-go performance. And Kelly O'Hara is far from that. Far from that. She's just such a great actress. The total professionalism of the acting and the detailed nature of the acting. And reportedly, she is going to be in a new Adam Gettle musical with Brian Darcy James, an adaptation of The Days of Wine and Roses, and I could not be more excited for that. Kelly O'Hara oh, yeah. and Brian Darcy James in a new Adam Gettle musical about the troubles of alcoholism. <laughs> Wake up, Dan! You're in a par- you're in a fever dream. What is this? It's the last five years of my life. What is this? Oh Where shit! Where am I? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Room spinning. Uh, um. And so let's wrap up with, I guess, the, the last real big character in this show. Uh, we've got Dallas, played by Jack Noseworthy. What'd you think of his Dallas? Well, I think you took Dallas to O'Hare. Ah. Uh. <laughs> That's an airport humor. That is a very funny joke about airplanes. And he's hung up. But it was, <laughs> that's a great joke, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows what a great joke that was. <laughs> it was really fucking terrible. Really terrible. <laughs> because Dallas to O'Hare is one of the le- <laughs> most common routes in America. Congrats to you. Oh. Oh. I- you love me. Uh, look. You love me. Do I want? Do you love me? Do I love him? So, Jack Noseworthy as Dallas. You know, he's... Not to be confused, not to be confused with uh, Tony Yazbek as Tulsa. <sighs> okay, and you thought I made a rotten joke? 
White so dancing hunk say. as country name. Come on. Anyway, um, Con- country state name. Shut up. Not state. Fuck you. Shut up. I don't know America. Go on. Dallas isn't given much to do in this show, but he is a perfect compliment to whoever he is sharing the stage with. And I also have to say, the part is ridiculously hard to sing. Uh, well, I got me a one-track mind. Yada da da dum. That's like a high G. The the last phrase on my one track mind. Uh, on that's an A. And then mind goes up to a C, high C. His voice is really surprisingly capable because he hits such intense high notes and he seems makes to them not sound be struggling easy. to do so. Yep, makes yep, them sound makes easy. Yep, makes them sound easy as shit. And that is impressive as fuck. You know what? I feel like Dallas was the most unapologetically unlikable character. Like, you have JJ really? who calls for the actual murder of people, and yet you're sitting there watching Dallas going, I can't fucking stand this guy. Like, <laughs> what is it? I, is it that it's, it's the fucking... It's, it's the fact that he's a... I it's can't the fact take that he's a self-righteous notes. artist. It's the fact that he's a self-righteous artist. That's the reason... That's a crime... That's a crime worse than murder. You know who <laughs> should play Dallas? Ben Platt. Who's that? Ben Platt really understands oh my God. about Whoa, getting back somewhere track, back track, back on track. your own no, no, no. and not no, taking hey, any hey. handouts and hey. making it on your own so, good yeah. We gotta... Hey, we gotta... We gotta... We gotta... We gotta cut it out here. Someone's gonna... J- Someone in the Platt family is gonna J.J. Hunsecker this podcast. We can't. Who are you? Bam, bam, bam. Oh. Hey, look, it's Kello. What are you? Ooh. My bloody hand is waving through the window for help. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a really, it's a really great performance. Um, does a lot with a lot of ease. Anyone? I, I, I guess that's, uh, I guess that's uh, the company, isn't it? Pretty much. And so now... Let's finish, I guess, this last step of the conversation by talking about this video. So, this is obviously a VHS. There is a strong VHS whir in the background. Yes. Outside of that, perfect video. Perfectly shot. It's pretty well shot. It's pretty well shot. You get a bunch of great close-ups. But never too close. And every now and then... No, no, it's never too close. Sometimes you do find yourself uh, in a position where you're zooming out to catch the action, but it like takes a while for the zoom to happen, and so you're sort of just waiting to finally be able to capture that. I remember there was, I think there was the moment in uh, Penn Station where I think they were trying to capture um, Sydney's entrance, walking in on uh, the two of them, uh, Dallas and Susan, and it's like you just zoomed out enough to, like, catch that he's there before Dallas is exited. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a problem with the thing. It's not, it's, it, that's not a detriment to me for the video. But, yeah, it's really effective. You, you never feel like you're missing much with the, sh- with the video. Fantastic um, picture quality. Really fantastic picture quality. Oh, totally. Quality. Totally. Yeah. Um, Such clarity meshes with the lighting fantastically. Mm-hmm. Well, w- well shot, well maneuvered. Seems to know exactly uh, how to follow is, the action. 
this is a uh, this is an A minus video for me. Oh, I think this is a very high A. I think for two thousand two, this is about pretty much exactly as good as it gets. Mm, okay, okay, I, I'm gonna stick to an A minus. All right, and with that, let's now grade "Sweet Smell of Success" as a show. What grade are you gonna fix to this show? Walk me through your process. I have a couple issues. I have some things that I think should have been rewritten. Uh, there's the one moment that stops the show dead in its tracks. Um, it's not perfect, but I do think it is a masterpiece. I think it is among the ten best scores of the new millennium. I think it's a great book. It was a decent production. This is a total A, and a very high A at that. I'll agree with you. I'm going to give this show an A. That was Sweet Smell of Success. And you know what else I'm smelling right now? I'm smelling a little bit of Mary J. And our next show has a lot to do with marijuana. Next week, Passing Strange, everybody. We're going we're gonna to approach some strange and then uh, pass right by it. Passing Strange. Do you know anything about this show? Yes, I do. We, we, you and I have talked about the show privately a little bit. Not really. It's me sending you messages and you're like, you don't respond. I engaged with you. Did you? I, Not in the moment because I was panicked. It's a long story. I was writing a paper that I needed help with. And I was very high. Yes, I do remember this now. Uh-huh. That actually checks out. I was very high, and I edited your paper, and you got an A. That's different. That's Those are three different scenarios. Uh, they were all happening at the same time, so let me just say, I'm fantastic. Three different simultaneous scenarios. I am fantastic at pointing out all of your verbal problems, all of your problems with prose, while high. That's how good I am. You feel proud of yourself? I am proud of myself. Good. See you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unauthorized Critic Circle. Tune in next week when we discuss Passing Strange, specifically the Broadway production's final performances in July 2008, as captured by Spike Lee. If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critics Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Sweet smell of success. And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critics Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute recordings discussed herein.